0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. We pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your body that you gave, your blood that you shed. Uh, you, you gave it all, and, and Lord, we are not worthy of any of it because we're not worthy of you but we thank you for your great mercy this day and uh, that you uh, that you demonstrate every day of our lives we thank you for how it is so clear in the cross of our Savior that you love us and um, that your grace is greater than our sin we thank you for your mercy and for your love for us and Lord we pray that you would bless the, the, your word to our hearts today as we as we dig, dig into uh, some of the Old Testament scriptures, that you would just give us uh, understanding, that you would illuminate our, our understanding, enlighten our minds, Lord, and quicken our hearts so we can understand and so that we can apply uh, your word to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are going through the Bible in three years, three-year journey through the Bible. And uh, the Bible is a big book. And uh, we're, uh, mm, September, October, November, December, January, yeah, so we're not quite six months in, and we are, uh, today we're scheduled to be in the book of Leviticus, as Angela mentioned. And I loved, I loved, I loved, I loved what she said. She said, it's really difficult, but it has great value to us. I think we would do well to keep those two things in mind this morning as we, as we dig in. Um, the first thing I want for us to do uh, scripture-wise right now is to um, get you to turn to the very end of the book of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 16 and following, and I want to read there the, the, the last um, half chapter of the book of Exodus with you. So, uh, Exodus chapter 40, verse 16 and following says, This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases, set up its frames, and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle. He set up the lamps before the Lord and the, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and he put water in it for washing. With which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar. And he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished all the work. And then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, we're going to be talking about those journeys, uh, Lord willing, uh, starting next week, and uh, for a few weeks after that, as we look at the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy a little bit. Again, this is just a it's just a cursory study. It's just a, a bit of a survey through the Bible. There's uh, we'll talk. There's more that we won't talk about than than what we will talk about because it's a big book. Um. So Jerry talked to us last week about the tabernacle being constructed and and uh, assembled, put together, as we read here as well. And he he talked about all the furniture and the furnishings, and um, and. Uh, I think it's Leviticus eight or eight or nine or both. Talks about a, a seven-day ordination service for all the priests, where they dedicated and consecrated all of the tabernacle and all of the implements and and all of the furnishings and the the priests with all of their beautiful robes. And they they consecrated that all and dedicated it all out in the front front at the very front of the tent. Of the meeting they had a big ceremony lasted seven days long. Uh, it lasted for seven days, and they dedicated, and they atoned uh, for all, Moses, uh, uh, atoned with the blood of the sacrifice, uh, sprinkling it on uh, all of that. And the ceremony lasted seven days. You can read about it. It's, uh, it was uh, a, big, a big deal. And uh, uh, then from that day forward... Every day of their lives, every year of their lives, life after life for 1500 years, every day, those priests, assisted by the Levites, worked, sacrificing, morning and night, every day making sure the lamps were all filled and burning they could not go out. The fire on the altar could not go out. The bread on the table had to be replaced regularly and kept fresh. And all those offerings, and all those grain offerings, and all those vow offerings, and all those guilt offerings, and all those sin offerings, and all those free will offerings, all those animal offerings, all those drink offerings, all those food offerings, all those incense offerings, all of it day after day, and it was more than that. Because when you get into the book of Leviticus, you start reading about all the, law, all the cleanliness laws. All the clean foods and the unclean foods. And all the infectious diseases they had to watch for. And the priests were responsible for all of that. With the assistance of the Levites. It was a lot. And it was a lot of work. There was constant activity every day. I don't know if they had jokes back then about priests and Levites working one day a week or not. I'm not sure, but they probably did. That was their worship. Now, what do we do to worship? We get together and sing for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. And we call it worship. If you read through the book of Leviticus, and it is difficult, what you're reading is an instruction manual. A detailed instruction manual. And, and if you read it correctly, if we read it correctly, you, you will appreciate the fact that God did not leave them without very specific Detailed instructions. Think about it for a moment. We bog down. We think, wow, this is this is too much. There's too much information here. There's too much, there's too much detail. It's too difficult. And we fail to appreciate the likelihood that the priests would have been very thankful for all that detail because the stakes were really high. And we could talk about some of that. How everything had to be done just so. They had little bells on their, on, their, on their robes that tinkled when they moved throughout the tabernacle or later, later on in the temple, which was designed after the tabernacle, same design. The little bells, that used to tinkle. And one of the reasons uh, theologians speculate about the bells is because uh, it's several times over and over again, they're told, the priests were told, if, the God, if God didn't accept that atoning sacrifice, uh, they would be immediately taken out. So if the priest was in doing that, uh, uh, that service uh, uh, of atoning and, and offering a, a sacrifice to God and, and something went wrong, if God wasn't either pleased with, y- with you in your life uh, or at your, sac- your, your, your sacrifice, you know, maybe you decided rather than giving him the best of your flock that you had a, a, a crippled lamb that would do just fine which was completely unacceptable according to God, or maybe there's something in that priest's life that wasn't right. What were the stakes? Several times we're told throughout, throughout the material, lest he die. And God doesn't leave that speculation either because if you read uh, in Leviticus after... We're told all of the instructions about all the offerings and everything that the priests were supposed to make. It says, then it, it says, uh, now Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers and they offered what the King James calls strange fire. What the, uh, some of the other translations have, uh, unauthorized fire. What is that? Well, part of the detail of all of that material was the incense that they would offer. If you read it, for example, you will see that there was a specific recipe that they had to follow to make the incense that the priests used in the temple, in the tabernacle. They couldn't vary from it. Not only, not only that, but that recipe couldn't be used anywhere else. You couldn't go anywhere else and smell that. The only place you could smell it was in the tabernacle. It was holy unto the Lord for the service of the tabernacle and the ministry of the priests who interceded for the people with God. And that one of the shortest stories in the Bible. It's one of the shortest stories in the Bible. It's only about three verses. It said, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. Gone. Both men. That would be one of the hard parts. Why is it there? That's just an example of some of the instruction. The anointing oil had to be just so. It had to be, follow this recipe. And you put this on those priests, and you do not put it on your body or anybody else's body, only on the bodies of the priests. Why? And God spelled it all out in great, great detail. And considering the stakes were so high, I guess the priests probably were thankful for the detail because they had to get it right. They had to get it right. Stakes were too high. You know, you can learn. We can learn a lot from what the furnishings of the tabernacle and so on that Jerry took us through. Uh, one of the things that you might want to think about is is what wasn't in the tabernacle. They had a stove. They had a table. They had a lamp. No chairs. Why wouldn't they have chairs in the tabernacle? And the simple answer is because they never sat down. It was constant. Constant. Um, The construction, Jerry talked about it, is a, a, a lot. You know, the entire design and chapter after chapter, all of these details. And... And, uh, you know, the, the odd person, like, like a John Lansell engineer guy, might be interested in reading through you know, how they put all those pieces together. Because remember, they, they didn't have to just assemble it all and make it really sturdy so it didn't blow down in those, their, uh, those desert winds. They had, to, they had to then be able to take it all down, move it five miles down the road, and set it all back up again, exactly like it was. Over and over and over again. But most of us, most people, we're not like John, who's curious about how things are made and wonder, how did they make that candlestick anyway? You know, like, it's kind of a marvel of technology. Most of us just bog down and say, this is, uh, this is just too much. It's too much detail. It's, too, it's too hard. And, and we're put off. Now, let's be honest. We're put off by it. I don't have a problem admitting to you that Leviticus has not been my favorite part of the Bible. I've read it. I've even forced myself to read it. But I can't really say as I've enjoyed it a whole lot because I found it too difficult and too much. And on top of all that, on top of all that, we also tend to think It's okay because it's irrelevant anyway. Because we're in the New Testament. Hallelujah! We can forget about that. The only problem is that the New Testament says we can't forget all that. The New Testament says that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. Check it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says it was written for our instruction. Now, I'm checking my own attitude on this because uh, God's been dealing with me on this because I don't tend to think that Leviticus was written for my instruction. I tend to skip those parts of the Bible because they're too much and they're too hard. But God's been dealing with me about that. And so this morning I would like to share some thoughts with you about uh, what uh, just some of the things that we need to learn from the tabernacle and from the worship of Old Testament Israel. The first thing then is, the, uh, is uh, uh, the, whole, the whole system, the whole tabernacle, not just the tabernacle, but the implements, not just that, the, the furnishings and the priests and the offerings and, and all of it, the feasts, the whole thing. I want you to think of two words. I, I want you to think of the word unity and the word uh, complexity. I could say diversity, but I'll say complexity because I think it describes a little bit more what, what I want for us to, to consider this morning. Um, there is a sense in which it's all very simple. It is in one way simple, okay? It is, it is a whole. In fact, in Exodus chapter 26, verse 6, it says, You shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. One thing. What we're talking about is one. One tabernacle. One worship of God. And uh, that's important. It's important to see that there is a, a symmetrical and an intentional sense of design and it's all going the same direction it's all for one purpose it's all of one spirit and it's all unified or one throughout and it's all about Jesus and if if we're not getting anything out of this whole part of the Bible, then maybe, maybe that's what we missed. Maybe we've missed the fact that all of this is about one thing, and that one thing is, is Jesus. You know, when you're walking, you're walking through, and when you uh, walk in that front entrance of, uh, uh, well, you wouldn't be allowed unless you're a priest, of course, right? But, but let's just, let's just say that you are a priest because i think there might be something about that in the new testament actually about us all being priests right first thing you come to is that brazen altar and jesus is the lamb that is slain that takes away the sin of the world and then you come to that that labor full of water and jesus is the living water and then over here is that table of showbread and Jesus is the bread of life. And over here is that golden lampstand and Jesus is the light of the world. And there's that offering altar of incense that were the, the incense and the fragrances would rise up to God as the priest stood there and prayed and made intercession for the people. And Jesus is the one who ever lives to make intercession for you and I. And then that temple veil, and Jerry said to us last week, that veil is the body of Christ that was torn for you and for me. And inside that veil, that there ark of the covenant, the very presence of God dwelling with his people. Come to the New Testament, and what, do we, what does John chapter 1, Jerry took us there last week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. How do you understand that without the Old Testament? In the beginning was the Word. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that everything that was written up to that point was all about Jesus. He is the living Word. And what we see in the Word and in the imagery of the Old Testament, Jesus is the reality of. He is the living Word. And it's all about him. That's the unity of the of the uh, the tabernacle. In its beauty, in its symmetry, in its structure and its form, it was all very very ordered. It was all according to God's direction. Now think about this for a minute. Can you imagine what it would have been like if God had just said? Yeah, whatever. Whatever you want to do, guys, I'm good with that. You see, we, we, we look at the detail and we look at all of the uh, particularity. Everything's all so particular. And for us, that, that, that grates on us. <laughs> because of our human nature, probably. But think about it. What would it have been like? If God had just said, make me something nice. Do you think it would have reflected the nature and character of God? But when you study the tabernacle and the worship of Israel, it all is designed to reflect the nature and the character of God. All of the little details have something to teach us. And we don't have time to go through all those details, uh, but I, but I, I do want to go through some of them. And I want you to know to that when you come into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says there to the church, he says, everything needs to be done decently and in order. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion. He's not a God of chaos. The pagan worship was chaotic. They just did whatever they felt like doing. And, and that's not the way we worship God. We do not worship God by doing whatever we feel like. We don't even do God, worship God by, by doing what we think might be a good way to worship God. We worship God as he directs us to worship him. And his direction is in his word. So this is pertinent. This is, this is relevant. So there's this oneness. There's this amazing consistency in God. And that consistency is mirrored in his creation. We were looking, doing a book study on Saturday mornings. And last week was about God's uh, immutability. Thank you for that, because I forgot to grab it, but I am going to. Immutability, what's that? Doesn't change. God doesn't change. Same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the Lord, I change not. There's, that is the epitome of consistency. Is that important? Is consistency important? Aren't you glad, Jeff, that the sun's going to come up tomorrow? Oh, it's gonna. It's coming. Yeah. Where would we? Where would our lives be without that kind of consistency? By the way, speaking of that, the temple faced uh, east. The tabernacle faced east, and all of the altars they've excavated. In when they excavate in uh, in Palestine, uh, they have no problem in telling the Jewish altars from the pagan altars because all of the of the Jewish elders, all face these consistency. Some things do not change. And the things that do not change are the things that are directly connected with God. The things that are directly connected with us, they all change. But God doesn't change. And you can be thankful uh, for that. So so um, I don't want to bog down here, but there's this, this amazing uh, consistency. Uh, that we see here. So there's a oneness. You don't have to wonder, gee, what? I wonder what suit the priest is going to wear tomorrow. He wore the same thing every day. Every day. He had one suit. Why would God do that? Is God against variety? No. But God is for consistency, and he, he, he is making a point. Some things stay the same aren't you glad that the Gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't change aren't you glad aren't you glad that the Gospel of Jesus is as relevant today as it was two thousand years ago? Because your situation is in many ways very 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 different than somebody living two thousand years ago they didn't even have running water well some of them did but anyways but 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 the gospel hasn't changed and so these things are important um so whether we're talking about the recipe for the anointing oil or, or, the, or the fragrance or the, the procedure for all the offerings and so on. Um, oh, let me see. Um, I have this uh, Psalm 133 up. Um, Psalm 133. The Psalms are, are amazing how they tie into um, the worship, Old Testament worship of Israel as it's laid out in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, behold, behold how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Why would that be beautiful? Why would that be described as such a a beautiful thing? Well, it's, it's imagery, right? And a lot of what we're talking about here is imagery. And imagery is very powerful. Imagery is a very powerful way to communicate. Um, The finest olive oil, particular spices and fragrances. And here, the writer of of the Psalms, the writer of this Psalm, Psalm One Thirty Three, picks up on that and talks and compares it, or uses it as an image of what unity. Anointing oil, a specific recipe of anointing oil, not just oil, not just plain oil, but a special anointing oil running down Aaron's beard all over his collar. Warm, smooth, frictionless. That's what we, one of the things we use oil for, right? It it smooths out all those friction points. I'm sure that, that the writer of Psalm 133 didn't know anything about combustible engines. But did you know that a combustible engine will not run without oil? It would just burn up. Like some of our relationships burn up. the imagery is powerful and it's important. Um, The one part, the one focus, but what about the complexity? I want to say this to you. I want to say that God, God is one. The Old Testament makes that point over and over again. We are to worship one God. One Lord, one faith, but God is also complex. There is a complexity in God, and that too is demonstrated and is observable in his creation. Just think about how complex creation is, and the world is, and life is, and that's because God is. Now, you may not have heard somebody describe God God as complex, before. It's not exactly a theological term. But I I think it is important because um, life is complex and our worship is complex. Um, We want our (laughs) lives to be simple. And there is a sense that life is simple. It all comes from God. That's the simple part. There's not 18 Gospels. There's only one true Gospel. There's only one true God. But we want it that to be all there is to the story, and the reality is is that God is also... Life is very complex, and God is is complex. I, 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 um, I, and again, I'm, I'm I'm working some of these things through in my own heart and my own mind as we're you know reading through the Bible together. But we want our worship to be simple. We want our worship to be this simple that. God, just tell us that you love us and give us what we want. We associate worship with freedom. But how do we understand freedom? Is it the freedom to do what we want? Hardly. Do we believe in boundaries? Are there boundaries? Are there boundaries in our worship? Or can I just do anything I want? Can I worship God any way that I want? And the answer, biblically, is absolutely not. See, here's part of the thing, is that it is idolatry to worship any other God than the one true God. But it is also idolatrous to worship the one true God in any way that is not in keeping with the ways that he says he should be worshiped. You follow me on that? Because I think that that is important. Um, All of the stuff about the tabernacle and the Levitical priesthood and the laws, the worship, worship laws and regulations of Israel are a lot to take in. But I believe that there is a reason why they're there for you and me. Um, I want to take you to Luke 24. I, I, we've, you know, we did a study through Luke not too many years ago. But Luke 24, uh, verses 25, 27, it says, uh, Jesus, This is Jesus speaking to his disciples after his resurrection. After his death, after his resurrection, he says to them, when he appeared to them on the road to a maze, he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, notice, right? Beginning with Moses, who wrote the material that we're reading and studying? Moses. Okay? Okay. We believe them to be divinely inspired, but Moses was the the human author. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, I'm not just making this stuff up. When I say to you that everything in that tabernacle was Jesus, that's not some fanciful thing that I come up with. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Uh, later on in the same chapter, verses 44 and 45, it says, Then he said to them, These are the words I, I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. How do we know, how did they know that Jesus of Nazareth was the one and only, that he was the real real son of God, the real Messiah? How do they know that he was the Messiah? He did miracles, but that's not, that didn't confirm his, his identity as a son of, of God because there were other people doing miracles as well. The best biblical answer to that question is, is that he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. He fulfilled it all. Why? Because it's all about him. He's the living word. Remember the reason that God gave us the scripture. So that we might, he might reveal himself to us so that we can know him. Right? <clears throat> uh, so in the Old Testament, there's a lot of imagery. we you're in the uh, Exodus out of Egypt, you have the Passover, the Passover lamb. So there's powerful imagery there related directly to the Lord's table. Uh, then the manna in the wilderness, right? Imagery again. And the rock at Horeb. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock was Christ, Paul said. So this is how the New Testament views the Old Testament. And how how Jesus, our Lord, viewed the Old Testament. And how he taught his apostles to view the Old Testament. And that's how we need to view the Old Testament. The gospel of Jesus is all there in the tabernacle. including the incredible irony of the gospel. And that irony uh, consists of, uh, uh, of how the, the, uh, the, we see both the, uh, the, the presence of God and the distance of God, the nearness of God and the distance of God. Day after day, day after day, all day long, every day, Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, life after life, their whole lives all centered around this visible, very visible, very sensory, not just visible but auditory as well as as sensual and, and it was always there as a constant reminder, a constant reminder of the presence of God and the incredible distance between us and God. That's the ironic part. the the, the pillar of uh, cloud, cloud, a pillar of fire by night, constant for forty years, until they in and and it shows up again in the new, in the temple, right in the in the in the promised land, saying to the people, saying to you and I, not only that God two things. Number one, God wants to dwell with you, God wants to be in your life, God wants you. God has a desire to be with you. But number two, we have a problem. And it's a big problem. It's called sin. Think about how beautiful this place was. They, they say that if you melted down the menorah, that's the, the golden candlestick. If you were to melt it down today, if you had it to melt down, and you melt it down, it would be worth a million bucks. And that's just one piece the lid, the cover of the of the ark was solid gold. They even took gold and they hammered out the gold into, hammered it out and, and cut it into threads and they weaved it into all the fabric. Imagine you've got this robe on you, and it's got gold woven all through it. You know, you'd say you look like a million bucks. Imagine how beautiful this all was, and and then wasn't and it was the all the the clothing and all the furniture and all the wall hangings and all the everything. It was just it was all of the um, the uh, special uh, artwork. And imagine what would go through the mind of the average person or priest, either one, who would be staring at that at that all the time as the blood ran down it. Even their clothing. This year, seven-day ordination service. It's like you get a brand new car. They say, you get a brand new car, go in the house, get a hammer, take it out, go bang on the, on, the, on the roof of your car, right? And Then you don't have to worry about any dings after that, right? Well, that's what I was reminded when I was reading this because here they are. Everything is immaculate. It's perfect. It's so beautiful. It's so costly. It's so ornate. It's so amazing. It's so wonderful. Like God. And it's covered with blood. Even their clothes. They first, before they even started to serve. Blood everywhere. The subject this morning is supposed to be the atonement or the day of atonement. And I, rather than just going to Leviticus uh, 16 16 or 17 and talking about the day of atonement. I thought it might just serve us a little better to just talk about some of these foundational concepts, the whole concept of atonement, covering of our sin. Who wouldn't want to have their sin covered? So you have these, this dual, this kind of, you know, on the one hand, there's this just, just incredible beauty, and at the same time, there's this kind of grotesqueness. What? Why, why? Well, fo- folks, that, that's the way the gospel is. If you've ever stood by faith, at the foot of Jesus hanging on that cross. If you've ever stood by faith at the foot of the cross, you've seen both of these things. You've seen the incredible, beautiful love and purity and sinlessness of God. The perfection of God. I think it says, uh, Psalm says, Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. This word holiness that comes up over and over again through all this material. What does it mean? It means that God's perfect. But if you stood at the foot of that cross of Jesus, you've also seen something else. You've seen the sin, your sin and mine. Because he bore it all. He shed his blood for your sin and mine. What was in the ark of the, the inside the holy place? What was inside the ark? Jerry mentioned this last week. The commandments. Now we know that like they put Aaron's rod that butted in there and they put some of the man in there. But but right from the get-go, when they were told to to, when Moses was told to build the ark, he, he was told it was called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony, because that's where they put the commandments of God. Now think about this for a moment, okay? How relevant is this? Think about this. We live in a day and age when people A lot of people feel, and I'm talking believers, I'm talking people in the church, feel sometimes we get this idea that we can worship God without obeying God. But in the Old Testament tabernacle, it was clear, 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 clear that you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. That God would call that an abomination. So, like what I said before about how we would—we just—we just—we just, we want it to be simple. We just want to worship God. Leave me alone; I'm worshiping God. Are you obeying God? Because if you're not obeying God, you're not worshiping Him. You know, we think worship is 20 minutes of music, half an hour of music. If it's really good, an hour of music. You know, April, when you and Alex were up here and making that announcement about. Us helping our young people get to a conference where they can hear about Jesus and have their lives changed? If we're willing to pull it in our pockets and pull out some, some of our, our money? That's all worship. And you're sitting there going, well, I don't know how much, how much I can spare. Well, are you going to do it as an act of worship? Because that's how God wants us to live. That's one of the things about all, all of this is it was, it was so, it permeated everything, every aspect of, of their lives. It was all worship. I, um, we want our worship to be easy. We even have a software called Easy Worship. <laughs> Somehow I think that they should have rethought that. Because you know what? Worship's not Easy. How, how, I'll give you an example. Worship includes repentance. Is that easy? Is it an easy thing to do to admit that you're wrong? <laughs> Maybe you find it easy. I don't find that easy. I struggle with that one. And that's just one example of how worship is not easy. You know, worship, worshiping God, the way God calls us to worship him, can be the most agonizing thing there is. It might leave you torn to shreds. It might leave your heart torn open and bloody. As you feel the weight of your sin and realize how your sin offends a holy, perfect, righteous God and that Jesus died for you so that you can be forgiven. Does that sound like something that's easy peasy? I I don't want to, I'm not trying to be like I, I've been trying to wrestle some of this stuff through in my own heart and life as I've been reading, thinking, God, you know, I've never read Leviticus like this before. I've read Leviticus more than once, but I didn't give it the time it deserved. I didn't give it the consideration it deserves. I, uh, I'm going to have to Wind down. Um, I knew that I would not get through my notes today because I have 13 pages of notes. I'm on page seven. But I knew that was going to happen, so I planned for it. So it's okay, relax. Let me throw up a couple, let me throw this first up at you. First Samuel 15, 22, and 23. Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings as, and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Are you seeing these words? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. There's a lot you can read about the fat of of rams in Leviticus. Okay? It was part of their sacrifice. They had it all lined out. Very detailed, very particular. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. It's not saying that sacrifice is not important. Sacrifice is important. The offerings that they did are important. Offerings are important. What you give is important. If you think of of the sacrifices as offerings, because because they were, you understand that everything they sacrificed pretty much was food. I can never understand the grain offerings because we talk about the atonement and and it says, I've given you the blood to make atonement. For your souls cover your sin, but you know so what's the bread for what's the grain for what's the what's the, the fruit of the vine for what like why all these other offerings what are they for and God's been uh, revealing uh, some things to me on that and uh, you know um, it's kind of been been a huge blessing um, for me to realize some of these things that, you know, if you think, the offerings of the people made the tabernacle and everything in it. And the offerings of the people sustained the tabernacle completely. Even the whole priesthood, they're living everything. And all of the sacrifices came from the people. It was all offerings, right? So we look at it and we think animals, we don't think food. They thought food. Even the grain. They were giving their bread. They were giving their livelihood. Now, do you think that they were doing that because God is hungry? No, we know better than that, right? So what what was that all about anyway? Well, there was the, the atonement part. But what about all the other things? And, uh, well, what about you? What about when, when you give? <clears throat> Except for Sean, who still has his 50 bucks. <clears throat> <laughs> I'm thinking he could. I'm thinking he could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, if, what if the offerings to God represent a whole life of living before God and they're centered on the atonement but they encompass the whole broader spectrum of God's saving grace. You know, Christian living is is forgiveness is critical. You can't go you can't go in without going by that brazen altar. But there's more beyond the brazen altar. There's more to worshiping God than just being forgiven and we could talk about intercession we could talk about prayer we could talk about so many things because it's it's all there in picture form but just think about this for a moment God's not hungry why does he want food or maybe God just knows that we have a real problem with stuff and money and substance of any kind. And that for us to give something means we have to trust him or somebody. You know, give all your food away. Uh... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish, I'm going to try to finish with this. I'm going to skip over some stuff here. And I want you to turn to John um, in the New Testament. John chapter um, 4. And here's a simple question for you, okay? Before, you, before we look at John 4, here's a simple question. <laughs> if God did not want to include all the details in the book of Leviticus that are there, why did he include it? And of course, you know the answer because he wanted them all there. Which tells me something. Even though my heart doesn't like to admit it, that the difficult parts and the complicated parts are there to teach me something. And if I will be willing to dig it out, there's incredible blessing. In the, the imagery of Christ that's there. John chapter 4, verse 20 to 26. Jesus, you know the context, Jesus having a, a conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, the Samaritan woman at the well in um, Sakkar and and this is, we're, we're jumping into the conversation, but I want to just pick up on some one thing that Jesus says here, okay? He says, uh, she says to him at one point in John chapter 4, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, so they're not in Jerusalem, okay? They're in Samaria. So they're not talking about, about uh, uh, Jerusalem or Zion. They're talking about Mount Samaria, okay? And, but you say, you Jews, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship because after they entered the promised land, you may recall or you may know that the tabernacle moved around a little bit and then David ends up bringing the ark into Jerusalem and establishes Jerusalem as the center of worship uh, and, where, and, of course, provided for Solomon to build the temple. Solomon, his son, built the temple and the worship continued as on uh, for another thousand years. And, uh, but Jesus, Jesus said to her in verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. Are we supposed to go to Jerusalem and offer sheep and goats as New Testament Christians? No, no, we don't, we don't do anything like that. Now, let me rephrase that. We do do something like that, but that's not it. Um, Verse 22, this is is, uh, the phrase. You worship what you do not know. I've read that many times. I've read that many, many times because I'm a New Testament guy. I love the New Testament. Love it, love it, love it, love it. But I never noticed that statement quite the way I noticed it this week. Jesus said to that Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We... Worship what we know, meaning we Jews. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What was the Tabernacle all about? It's the gospel. It's all about salvation. It's all about Jesus. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And I believe that Jesus is saying there that that. Uh, the time is coming when 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 uh, God will not be worshipped in, in form or ritual anymore. He'll be worshipped in the reality of that form. Just like the writer of Hebrews talks about the Old Testament imagery as being a shadow of what was to come. And that G- what it was in shadow, Jesus is in reality. This is what it's really all about. And... Um, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He could have said, I am the tabernacle. Because he did say, remember, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Right? He did say that at one point. The time is coming and now is. That's Messiah, Jesus, the king. He he, he he is here and he is coming, right? But that phrase, that phrase really stuck. You worship what you do not know. And I thought to myself, how much of our worship misses the mark because we don't know what we need to know? about some really important things about God and his ways. It's just really easy to say, God, I love you, God, and I'm so glad you love me. Without having God put your finger on and go, "Uh, excuse me, but but what you just did over there, you, you can't do that and worship me. Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew 5, he said, you, you find yourself before the altar with an offering. He's talking in the Old Testament context. You find yourself before the altar. He's talking about the temple. Which altar? Probably the brazen altar because they weren't allowed to go in through there beyond that. They weren't, they weren't priests. The disciples, none of the disciples were priests. right? So which offerings which altar is talking about? I'm talking about the brazen altar. You go into the brazen altar. What happened to the brazen altar? Atonement. Sacrifice for sins. You go in before that brazen altar and you realize that somebody, your brother has something against you, you stop right there. You leave that you leave that that right there, that offering right there. You go and you be reconciled with your brother. Then you come back and then you offer that offering. You see what Jesus is doing there? And 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 all I'm really, I don't know. I don't know. My head has been so full this week, I, um, I thought a few times it was going to explode. But, <clears throat> but God has really been challenging me on this, convicting me about my worship of God. Because you heard what Jesus said The Father is seeking worshipers, He is seeking worshipers. That has not changed. but it's not just a matter of who we worship. It's also a matter of how. And the Old Testament, believe it or not, has a lot to teach us about how God is to be worshipped. That's really what it's all about. And so I would counsel all of us Take another read through. Some of it you will not understand. Some of it will sound seem arbitrary. Some of the cleanliness laws seem arbitrary. Then again, some of them make a lot of sense. And if you were to uh, go back into that day, um, you know, before there was even such a thing, before they even discovered germs, and even, even discovered germs, And God gave them a whole section of the manual telling them how to deal with infectious diseases. Fascinating, eh? But then you get the whole cleansing of the lepers and all that. And you come in the New Testament. Why don't you stand with me? Come in the New Testament and Jesus heals the leper. And we go, wow, isn't that wonderful? Jesus healed the leper. Without taking the time to read through I think it's two or three chapters in Leviticus that's all about how the priests were to deal with leprosy and the process involved before they proclaimed somebody to be clean. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I'll say one more thing. We always read these things like Joe Drew. The problem with that is the New Testament says you're a priest. So maybe we need to go back and read through all these things again and not read them as if we are Joe Jew, but read them as if we were a royal priesthood and see what all we can learn about what it means to worship God and live for Jesus as a royal uh, priesthood. Um, I'm going to stop, but I, I, I'm going to pray. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is so much in your word that it is overwhelming. And Lord, I believe that's because you are totally overwhelming. There is so much simplicity in the gospel of Jesus that even a child can understand it. And at the same time, it's deeper than the deepest sea. Help us, Lord, as your people, to dive deep and to live deep in your word and in all that it means to worship you and to live for you. In every single area of our lives, Lord, help us to worship you and you alone in the ways that you deserve to be worshipped. Lord, I thank you for the atoning blood of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, my Savior, on that cross. And I thank you that it makes a way. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. I thank you, Lord, that you've made that way, Jesus. But I thank you, Lord, that when we walk through that gate, that gate of salvation, that narrow, narrow gate, that it opens up into the broadest and most wonderful of places, living in your will. Help us to, to learn these things and to learn them well and help us to live out of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.